Hey y'all, thank y'all for tuning in to Black Girl True Crime. I am your host, Kay Simone, and this episode is part two of the DC Snipers. So I'm going to kick this off with a quote from an article that I came across while I was doing my research. It's titled, A Collective Timeline of the DC Sniper Case from 2002 to 2019. So spring slash summer of 2002, the men go on a shooting spree that includes victims from Los Angeles, Tucson, Clearwater, Florida, Denton, Texas, and Hammond, Louisiana. End quote. Now, if you've been kicking it with me, you know I don't play that shit. We gonna name all of these damn victims. And I don't know, I was scratching my head because we got confessions from 2006. This was published in 2019. This is not a collective timeline. If we're not given all of the information, let's name all of them, y'all. The world is fucked up. Let's talk about it. For the next couple of months, Black Girl True Crime is going to be shouting out Black creators and Black business owners. And I'm doing this shit for free. Why? Because this is my shit and I can do it, all right? So <laughs> I just want, I'm in the do good, be good spirit, y'all. Um, just in light of the new year, I feel like it's so hard for us to get our information out. Sometimes we got to jump through hoops. And a lot of the times it's about the ads and the money. I have no problem taking one to two minutes to plug other creators and business owners um, who are like myself. So let's go ahead and if you have your information ready, I just need your mission and where people can find you, what you got to offer us. Go ahead and send that information to blackgirltruecrimepodcast at gmail.com. You don't personally have to send me anything. I'm not asking for that. I just need your information and I will ultimately decide if I'm going to plug it on the podcast. All right, so go ahead and get to that. And then the first uh, person that I am going to plug is Coach AJ. Now, she hosts the Dope Life podcast. She's available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Anchor. 14 years deep in this life coach business. Her mission is to basically transform your life. I have personally spoken uh, with her on several occasions, and she gave me some mind-altering uh, advice. So I know for a fact that she knows what the fuck she's talking about. And especially if you're Black, LGBTQ, have you have a hard time setting boundaries or figuring out your day-to-day, why you're feeling so stuck, um, go ahead and reach out to Coach AJ. And you can find her on DopeLifeCoach.com and on TikTok at uh, Coach AJ, Dope Life Coach. Uh, so go ahead, y'all. Go cultivate the lives y'all fucking deserve, right? It's 2023. I want y'all to be masters of your mind, not slaves to it. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and let's get into this episode. All right, y'all. Let's go ahead and get into this. So just blanket trigger warning. I'm going to be discussing just pure fucking evil, gun violence, brutal deaths. It's horrific. If you are listening from these 50 ratchet ass states, I completely understand why you might want to skip considering the day and age that we are in. 
you know, we can't go to the store, we can't go to church, we can't, we can't send our kids to fucking school. It's a rough ass time. I completely understand if this is heavy. Uh, so go ahead and catch me next time, y'all. Now, if you're rocking with me, in part one, I covered the backgrounds of John Allen Muhammad and Lee Boyd Malvo. Now, we already tried to record this episode once. I had my good friend Bobby on. I went back to listen to the recording and the audio just isn't that great. I have found out a plan B. I'm going to kidnap the both of them for part three of the series. And then in part two, it kind of just opened up a way for me to really dive into the victim's that were attacked between February and October. In my eyes, they are just as important. And I understand that the Beltway sniper case, I mean, this is the DC sniper case where, you know, they got to kill in multiple people in one day. I understand why the majority of these articles go straight to October. Um, but I want to give y'all all of the information as much as I can possibly fit into this episode. So, Let's just get into it. I'm going to start with a little refresher. Again, if you have not listened to part one, go ahead and do that because y'all need to understand how we ended up to them going on this shooting spree. Now, John has lost his kids at this point, finds out that he's divorced from Mildred at the same time. I want to realign this case with a proper timeline of events so everything is clear. So Lee met back up with John after the custody hearing, and he noticed that this nigga is not the same person. And Una James, she's looking for Lee because John has yet to bring her son back to her. And it ended up with Una and Lee being arrested, and Una claimed that they had been smuggled into the States with false documentation. In my eyes, she like, all right. Like, John, you're not trying to give me my son. I'm going to get us deported back to Jamaica. Like, I don't know if that was her goal, what it was, but they ended up being released on a $1,500 bail. And Lee runs back to Muhammad. Now, this is when he starts his training. And Muhammad basically started to tell people that he was Lee's father. Lee was told that right and wrong didn't exist, only the mission. Now, I covered some of this in part one, but Melville was forced to read books on racial hatred, and I mean around the clock to tapes of Malcolm X. At night, he would listen to Bob Marley's political reggae music, and he was introduced to the Willie Lynch speech. If you are like me and you don't know what that is, let me tell you. So this speech was delivered in 1712 by a slave owner who traveled to Virginia to tell slaveholders how to control their African chattel. And this was by setting them against each other. All of these tapes and speeches were supposed to be proof that there was a conspiracy of white people against black people. Now, me and Coco, we said this in part one, like a lot of this shit when, hey, like, yes, we, this is during a time where, yeah, there's a lot of tension between white people and black people. But if he hadn't just kept it at the education instead of making this nigga do calisthenics and preparing for a fucking war that didn't exist, like, you know, come on now, two different things here. Um, Muhammad definitely crossed the fucking line. And Muhammad would often take Lee to the worst parts of town. And he said that poverty was the result of white folk. Now, the entire indoctrination included firearms training, screening of violent movies, and playing sniper video games. 
By the time Malville was on trial, psychologists testified that Lee Boyd Malville was so thoroughly brainwashed by John Allen Muhammad and his regiment of hatred that this 17-year-old boy agreed to martyr himself if both of them were to be captured. No one was to abort the mission. John basically told Lee that if he backed down, he was going to shoot him. And if John himself was to back down, Lee was to shoot him. Now, let's go ahead and get into the timeline of the shootings. I began and ended part one with the murder of Issa Nichols' niece, uh, Kenya Cook. Now, I gave a point of view from Malvo, and then I kind of got into what happened, but I'm going to give y'all more details. As a refresher, Issa Nichols worked for Muhammad's auto repair business. I talked about how Issa was very supportive of John's ex-wife, Mildred Green, as she was going through the stresses of how John's shitty-ass fucking behavior was tanking their business and her mental health. So... Issa was there for Mildred when John stole the children. She was there at the hospital and she was at the court hearings when John learned for the first time that he was now divorced and he was kidless because fuck you, John, at the end of the fucking day, like literally fuck you. Um, it is now believed that Issa was the target and not Kenya. So Kenya was just trying to turn her life around and she had moved in with Issa, you know, escaping an abusive relationship. And she was with her six-month-old baby girl, Angelia Rogers. And they were doing well, and shit was getting so much better. But, and then it just went left. On February 16th, and this is 2002, Kenya's at the house. She's cooking, taking care of her daughter. She's in the middle of changing her diaper when she hears a knock at the front door. Kenya opens the door and sees a small boy who literally looked like any other kid who would have lived in the East Side Tacoma community. And she tries to make small talk with him and he pulls out a gun and he shoots Kenya point blank in the face. <sighs> so Issa comes home after running errands and her daughter is the one who discovers Kenya on the floor. Issa runs inside, finds her niece has been shot dead and the baby was unharmed upstairs. Of course, we know Kenya's attacker was Lee Boyd Malvo, and this was his first test, y'all. So uh, later we find out that Issa Nichols' mother, Pamela Nichols, met Muhammad two days before Kenya was murdered, and he had been staking out their house well before ordering Lee to attack. And I'm gonna give y'all a quote from Issa, because I want y'all to keep in mind that she not only had to grieve the death of her niece, but she also had that survivor's guilt. I mean, this baby, like she has a six month old running away from an abusive relationship and she was so safe with Issa. And so here's her quote. It's one thing to have a loved one killed, but it is a whole other deal when you are the one intended to receive the bullet, end quote. Months later, John Allen Muhammad sent Lee Boyd Melville to Mildred Green's home and he was supposed to be under the guise of a salesman. And his instructions to John were, when she opens that door, you shoot her in the face. Mildred realizes that later, well, she realizes later on that she had in fact opened the door that day. But instead of shooting her, Lee Boyd Melville walked away. And I... Mm -hmm. Like, you're still a fucking asshole, Lee, but I, I wonder why he walked away. And Mildred Green said, and I quote, 
It is unknown the repercussions he faced because he didn't kill me that day. So now this is when we go on to a man who is unfortunately an unknown victim in Los Angeles. So Malvo confessed to killing a man in Los Angeles during a robbery. FBI sources who requested anonymity, anonymity, yes, I got that right, and I'm not editing shit tonight. So they stated his murder would have taken place in Southern California in either February or March. Malvo confessed that he shot the man at close range during the robbery. Unfortunately, this does appear to still be a cold case. And a lot of information was withheld so it wouldn't damage the case and other victims getting their justice. If you are able to find out who this man is, please go ahead and send me an email to blackgirltruecrimepodcast at gmail.com because I had searched high and low and I was not able to find that um, this man has been identified. So... The Homicide Division of Los Angeles County, they looked into dozens of cases trying to find a match to Malvo's confession. <sighs> they were unable to find anything to my knowledge, and but they were able to find boarding passes. So this is found way later on in the investigation. And it shows that Muhammad and Malvo boarded, boarded a bus from Los Angeles to Tucson on March 13th. And they were there through the 25th. Now, why were they in Tucson? They were in Tucson visiting Muhammad's sister, Odessa Newell. And this is when they targeted 60-year-old Jerry Taylor. This was a married salesman. He had three kids and five grandchildren. By all accounts, Jerry was a wonderful man, y'all. And he was always happy and always smiling. His daughter even said that he was the best father you could have asked for. And he's practicing chip shots at the Fred Ink Gold Course in Tucson when he was shot in the chest and killed. His body was then dragged into nearby bushes like y'all are fucking assholes. And honestly, I, was, I, I wasn't surprised, but Muhammad and Malvo had been stalking him prior and probably days prior. And they had been hiding in the bushes so they could basically watch him practice. The only evidence left was Taylor's golf hat, wallet and golf bag. And in Malvo's later confession, he told officers that they had shot a man at a golf course in Tucson. So then they head on over to Clearwater, Florida. So Albert McCalzick, he's golfing at Glen Oaks Golf Course. This golf course was located at 1345 Court Street and it's May 18th, 2002. Now, prior to the shooting, there had been no altercation, no other disturbances prior to the prior to the incident. And at the time, uh, Albert and his family, they're visiting from Arizona, like they're from Arizona and he's golfing with his son, grandson and his wife. They hear a loud bang and the noise was so loud that other golfers described it as a firecracker. And the man thought he had been hit by a golf ball. He looks down and he notices that blood is gushing from his chest. The bullet had tore through the right side of his chest and the, the doctors told him that if he had turned his shoulders just a little bit, that the bullet could have hit his heart. Now, Clearwater Police Lieutenant James Steffen said that they had no clue where the bullet came from and it didn't look like Paul had been specifically targeted. The co-founder of the course, Bill Hayes, said golfers were on that course that day and no one could figure out who fired the shot or where it came from. 
Technically, this case was never solved, but Albert believes Malvo and John shot him due to Malvo's confession in 2006. Now, Albert, he's rushed to Bayfront Medical Center in St. Petersburg. This man spends a total of two hours in there before being sent home. I'm sorry, baby, but if you shoot me, nigga, if you shoot me, y'all gonna have to give me at least a three-day fucking minimum, three business days. But this man, he spent two days in there, and the doctors, they basically told him, like, hey, take your ass home and buy a lottery ticket because you are lucky, and I found something that I would like to share with y'all. I was able to find his obituary. And Albert, he lived until April 25th, 2011, before passing away from coronary heart disease. So let me tell y'all a little bit. He is described as a loving husband, father, grandfather, great-great-grandfather, uncle, and a dear friend. He was dedicated to his local church and community and had a phenomenal tenor voice. And as we know, the tenors carried the choir and him and his wife retired in 2000. And this is when they moved to Arizona. Albert enjoyed golfing, traveling and meeting new friends. And he is survived by his wife, Penna and their children. After shooting Albert at the golf course, um, John Allen Muhammad and Lee Boyd Malvo, they head on over to Denton, Texas. And this is where they target 37-year-old Billy Jean Dillon. And I don't know, like, these, all of these are just really sad, but just their background. So Billy was born to Sarah Dillon and Billy Ralph. And I'm going to just call him Ralph so we don't get confused. And they call their son Preacher because he loved to talk. And... On this day, so it's May 27th, 2002, a call comes into the Denton County Sheriff's Office and the person on the line said they found a male in front of his residence with severe injuries to the head and cannot confirm if he is conscious or breathing. So on this day, and we are in unincorporated Denton County, and the day seemed promising, y'all. It's It was Memorial Day, it's warm outside, and it's around 10, 15 a.m., and a storm was brewing nearby, but that didn't phase Billy Jean Dillon, all right? Because he was working, he was performing his tasks, uh, he did a landscaping business, and he's working on a yard. He's on this quiet street when he is shot in the head from a distance with a high-powered rifle. The bullet hit the left side of his head and blasted through his brain and exited through the right side of his skull, and Billy died instantly. His body was found, and his body was found between a fence and a road um, around 10.27 a.m. by Don Loveless. And this was the owner of the house where Billy was working. Billy was wearing blue jeans and brown boots, and he had 50 cents in his pocket. Loveless said, and I quote, We were very surprised. We're kind of out in the country. We walk up and down the road. We were just shocked, end quote. Now, Billy's mother, Sarah, she literally watched the DC sniper case play out on TV and she never really thought that her son's murder could be connected. But they, but Sarah and Billy, um, Billy Ralph, they never stopped stressing the importance of their child's life. And they went as far as to making these buttons that they would wear on their clothes. And it said, Billy Jean Dillon is a very important person. And they just, they wore it to honor this son. So, 
In November of 2002, Denton investigators, they sent ballistic evidence recovered from the scene to the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives in Washington. Texas authorities later said that they were unable to link the homicide to the snipers. Tests on the bullet fragments were inconclusive, but the shooting style matched. We have a high-powered rifle, and it's a random shooting, and it didn't appear as if he was specifically targeted. And a spokesperson for the sheriff's office named Tom Reedy said that the investigation didn't uncover anyone who was mad at him. And he also goes on to question why it was so hard to get answers from the Washington area authorities. Malvo confessed to the murder of Billie Jean Dillon, y'all. But I want to point out that Malvo at this point, because mind you, the victims that I'm talking about now, we find this out way later. So uh, he confesses, and but by this time, he had provided conflicting accounts of the shootings during the trials and lied to the investigators after the arrest. So this case is still technically unsolved. Seven years later, after Billy's murder, Sarah wrote to John and Lee, and in the letter she said, if you have murdered my son, please confess. Y'all, she was still wearing the fucking buttons. It just, like, what assholes? What assholes? Like, I really hope that John is roasting, boy. Like, y'all ever been to, you know, Cracker Barrel? And you be seeing them Cornish hens? They be on them spigots and they roasting? Like, that, that is what I want for John Allen fucking Muhammad. So, they move on to Hammond, Louisiana. And this is when they target 58-year-old John Gata. So it's August 1st, 2002. Uh, John Gata, he'd been living in Hammond. And at the time, he was, you know, he was going to the mall. He was picking up some things. He realizes that it's closing time. So he runs into Sears real quick to grab a pair of shoes. So it's a little after nine when he makes it back to his truck. He gets in, he tries to drive off and realizes that he has a flat tire Excuse me. So he basically pulls under a street light in the mall parking lot to change it. Now, this is when two men walk up to him and they're asking him, like, hey, is the mall still open? And John's like, yeah, some of the stores are open. And the two men, they walk off and then they return about five minutes later. One of them asks if he needed any help. And John's like, hey, like, I got it. I'm all right. And one of the men, they kind of chuckle and they say, looks like you have a flat tire. Well, no shit fucking Sherlock. Yes, I have a flat tire. And so I even pointed out my notes. I was like, what assholes? Like, it is dark outside. You see me changing this fucking tire and you want to just waste my time by pointing out the fucking obvious. Like, get the fuck on. So the men walk off again and John goes back to working on his truck he hops into the bed of his Chevy Silverado, and this is to get the spare tire. And I don't know, like, these niggas, John and Lee, like, y'all are y'all want to be the hashling and slasher so fucking bad. I mean, he he's in the bed of his Silverado, and he looks over and sees someone crouching by his truck. And he kind of squints a little bit to try and see a little bit better. And then he sees somebody run into the front of his car. At this point, they done struck a nerve with John, and he's, he's thinking that it's two teens that are playing a prank on him. And John is over it, and he's like, what do y'all want? Like, what the fuck are y'all doing? And one of the guys, they come around to the door. They make eye contact with him. 
they pull out a .22 caliber revolver and they shoot this man from about five feet away. The bullet went through John's neck and exited his back just below his shoulder. And this man, he's terrified at this point, thinking that he's going to die. But he he's smart. He drops down to the ground and pretends to be dead. And this is when he kind of feels somebody in his pocket and they take his wallet and they book it. So John runs to a nearby gas station and we have to kind of think like this man had the adrenaline of a god. Like he gets into this gas station and he tells people that he's been shot by a paintball gun. And even later, like he recalled how he wasn't in that much pain. And the witnesses at the gas station, they're like, sir, you are bleeding out. So John is taken to the hospital and the doctors tell him that he didn't have any damage to his spine or arteries. This man was back home in an hour. But God, because, geez, back home in an hour. So, of course, we know that this was Muhammad and Malvo, you fucking assholes. And this, and they had arrived to Hammond on a Greyhound bus. And Muhammad had told Malvo he wanted him to shoot someone while they were there. And it is assumed by officials that this was another loyalty test. And it's very possible that they had already been following him and were the ones who slashed his tires. So years after confessing to the shooting, Malvo wrote Gaeta a letter and it read, Mr. Gaeta, I am truly sorry for the pain I caused you and your loved ones. I was relieved to hear that you suffered no paralyzing injuries and that you are alive. Sincerely, Lee Boyd Malvo. And my mind is going back to the first recording that I did with Bobby. Because the look on Coco's face and Bobby was like, nigga, what? Like, you, you, like what the fuck is wrong with you? Like, no. Like, I'm, I'm, like no. But later on, like, we'll see that Malvo does try to reach out any way he can to some of these victims and just give out his apologies. And I mean... It don't mean much. Like, nigga, you terrified me and then shot me from five feet away. So, I mean, fuck the both of y'all. So, this is when they head on over to Clinton, Maryland. And they target 55-year-old Paul LaRuffa. So, it's 10.30 p.m. We're in Clinton, Maryland. Paul LaRuffa, he's leaving his restaurant, Margelina. He says bye to his employees and his friends. And they start to get into their cars. Now, before he can start his, his window is shattered by a gunshot. And Paul said, I heard a loud, loud sound at the same time as the window exploded. Then the shots, y'all, they just came one after the fucking other. So about four or five shots are fired into this man's car. Then his laptop is stolen along with $3,500 and his briefcase. So one bullet went through his arm and into his chest. Another went through his diaphragm, another went into his side, and another bullet went into his neck right behind his spine. So, of course, uh, John and uh, Lee, they took the fuck off, and Paul's lungs had collapsed. And, I mean, the man had been shot a total of five times, and the friends and employees that he had been saying bye to, they hear these shots and come running back. 911 is called, and they instruct uh, to help Paul sit the hell down. 
Uh, like I said, the adrenaline that they must have had because he's still standing like, bitch, I have been shot. Like, y'all help me. So all he could say was like, all right, I'm going to sit down, but I don't want to die here. Like, just imagine being in a situation where you just have to recognize your own mortality and the clock is ticking. So it, it just has to be horrifying. Now, Paul wasn't alone and the uh, the 911 dispatchers, they were able to calm him down. They said, we're not going to let that happen. We're coming out there to help you. And they did exactly that. So Paul spent uh, eight to nine hours in surgery. He survives and it's determined well later that John and Lee had been stalking Paul for at least three days before shooting him. Now, this is when they move on to Silver Spring, Maryland, and they target 22-year-old Rupinder Oberoi. So it's September 14th, and he's helping Arnie Zelkovitz, who's the owner of Hillendale Beer and Wine. And they're closing for the night, and Rupinder, he had only been in the States for seven years, and he was from India. The man is just trying to live his life, make an honest living, and this should happen. So it's around 10, 10 p.m., and... Oprah, he hears a loud bang similar to a firecracker. At first, he didn't feel anything, but then after a few seconds, he couldn't breathe and he collapses. Zelkovitz, who was the owner, he remembered the sound. He said it sounded like something large had dropped onto a tin roof. And the next thing he knew, Rupinda was on the ground. So luckily, an off-duty uh, off Washington cop was nearby and called 911. And... He's in the ambulance. I just want to point this out. I added I added this to my notes because I thought this was bullshit. So he's in the ambulance and he's listening to the med techs work on him. He hears one of them say he's not going to make it. It's really bad. How about you shut the fuck up? I'm scared right now. Like, I'm terrified. Like, this is not something that you say out loud. Keep them comments to yourself. But luckily, Rupinder, uh, he did suffer damage to his kidney and liver, and he lost a portion of his stomach. And y'all, this was just from one bullet. But he does survive. In November of 2002, the Montgomery County Police Captain Nancy Dem revealed to CNN that the task force had officially linked Oberoi's shooting to the other sniper cases. So this is when they move on to Brandywine, Maryland. It's September 15th, and they target 32-year-old Muhammad Rashid. He was closing the Three Roads Liquor Store in Brandywine, Maryland, and he turns and sees Lee Boyd Malvo, and he he's later able to testify that it is definitely Lee who walked towards him. He makes some kind of demand for money and then shoots this man in the stomach without warning, steals his wallet, and leaves him to bleed out on the sidewalk. Rashid, he's out there alone. He calls 911, and this whole recording is incredibly heartbreaking. Later, he, he has to go on, of course, to testify against Malvo and John, and they have to replay this 911 recording again. It's beyond terrifying. It's really sad. So he can be heard like in between his tears and sobbing and just his fear. He's saying over and over, like, I am dying. Like, I am dying. I do not want to die. Like, help me. And the call is just so heartbreaking and horrifying. I mean, some of the jurors, they were crying and covering their faces and rocking in their seats like this whole as this shit just unraveled like 
A, if you want to place yourself in this shit mentally, which is not something I would suggest you do, um, but just from a standpoint of empathy, go listen to these tapes. They're very important. And mm, it's really sad. Again, it's heartbreaking. So they go on to Atlanta. And this is when, it's September 21st, they target 41-year-old Milion Wildemarium. So he had moved to Georgia in 96 from Texas, and he did this so he could be closer to the only relatives that he had in the States. He was born in 61 and was an Ethiopian immigrant known for his acts of kindness. At the time, he was working at Sammy's Package Store part-time, and this was a favorite to the owner, Mimi Tedesi, who was also from Ethiopia. Basically, Milion, he was in the wrong place at the wrong time, and he was shot three times with a .22 caliber handgun. One of the bullets hit his head, and he died almost instantly. So the Atlanta police chief, Richard Penning, said that Milian noticed a suspicious vehicle that was parked in front of the store. So he goes to mention this to Mimi, and she basically told him, like, don't bring your ass back outside because this car is in an isolated spot, and it's where it shouldn't have been. But Milian, like, hey, he's like, if there's some shit going on, like, I got to put a stop to it. And he had this fear that there was danger. And that just shows that he he wanted to be a protector. Very courageous, very brave. And he goes to check out this vehicle. And this is when he's shot and his wallet is stolen. So later on, the ballistics of the .22 caliber handgun were linked to both the Atlanta and Montgomery shootings, but no charges were ever brought on by Georgia. So September 21st, 2002, they head to Montgomery, Alabama, and this is where they target Claudine Parker and Kelly Adams. So September 21st, it's a Saturday night, and the street that housed the ABC liquor store was located at Zelda Road, and it's lined with banks and fast food restaurants. The area is always pretty lively, and it's about 10 minutes from downtown and from the state capitol. So Claudine Parker and Kelly Adams are getting ready to walk to their cars after their shift is over. Claudine had been talking about how excited she was to see her nephew play at his football game. Kelly, she's just ready to get home to her 16-month-old Brenda. And she even said doing her night routine with her baby was the best part of her day, y'all. Like, she, she just loved being a mother and she loved her routines. And... They're going to close the store, backs are facing towards the street, and, you know, Kelly's got the key and the lock to try and lock up while they're chatting. And this is when Kelly felt an electric jolt. She said she saw blood and realized that a part of her face had been blown onto her chest. And just in a moment of shock, she reaches down and she grabbed the piece of her face and tried to put it back where it belonged. Now, the ABC liquor store... there are pillars in front of the store. So uh, Kelly, she very possible, very possibly had seen Claudine get shot and Claudine instantly hits the ground. And Kelly tries to back up behind one of those pillars, but she is seen by either Lee or John. And this is when she is shot with the same high powered weapon. Now the bullet went into her shoulder and she suffered massive damage because the bullet exploded in her body. And Kelly, she had been hit in the back of the neck and the bullet broke her jaw before exiting her cheek and shearing off her front teeth. Like, yeah, fucking Kia. Like, 
oh not teeth stuff i'm sorry but wow and this was the first use of the infamous 223 bushmaster rifle she remembers looking up from the ground basically kelly she sees the these two skinny ass black legs and a revolver pointed at her face of course this was lee boyd malvo now what's weird is that he didn't shoot her he could have shot her again she's clearly alive but instead he ran off um claudine was rushed to jackson hospital and she died in surgery Kelly, she ended up having to go on a very long road. Um, she had upwards of 30 surgeries. And even down the line, she sees Muhammad on CNN. And this nigga is laughing about the shootings. This lady wasn't having that. She told folks flat that he shouldn't be receiving any airtime when no one was interviewing the victim's families to see how they were doing. And she said, the next time we meet, Muhammad will see me laughing from the other side of the execution window in Virginia as I watch them put him to death for hurting so many people. You fucking go, Glenn Coco. I know that's right. This man has caused so much harm, both him and Lee. Like, yeah, mm. but but when women, I because that's a big thing to go and just face the person who put you through so much bullshit for one last time. So I am, however, going to end this on Claudine Parker. Now, at one point in her life, she was a semi-pro tennis player. Her family remembered her for how great of an athlete she is. She was working her last pay period before her retirement. Like, fuck them. This was this lady's last pay period before she was to retire. And she was supposed to start as a tennis coach at Alabama State University. So her nephew, who I mentioned earlier, the one that she was so excited to go to his game, so that's Roman Harper. He went on to become a football star at the University of Alabama. And this just goes to show you, Claudine Parker lost her physical body, but this lady was not fucking done. Because in 2006, he was a second round draft pick out of Alabama. And on July 26th of that same year, y'all, he signed a $3.5 million contract with the New Orleans Saints, which included a signing bonus of $880,000. He went on to play eight seasons. And during that time, he helped the Saints secure their first Super Bowl win in 2010. This man was recently inducted into the Saints Hall of Fame. Big fuck you to John Allen Muhammad and Lee Boyd Malvo. So this is when they go on to Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And it's September 23rd, 2002, and they target 45-year-old Hong Im Ballinger. So she was born June 28th, 1957 in South Korea. She had met her husband, Jim Ballinger, uh, when he was on military tour. And he was with the army buddy, and they were attending a Korean movie. So later on, they get married in 83. They moved to the States in 85. Let me tell you about what Jim has to say about his wife. He says that Hong Im was his salvation, y'all, and saved him from a life of sin. And over the next two decades, these people, they built a life together, eventually settle settling in Baton Rouge, and they lived with their son in a one-story, three-bedroom brick home that Hong Im had just fallen in love with. I'm like, fuck these people. Like, just these families, like, they're just trying to build these lives together 
This man, I'm going to say it again, he said that Hong Im was his salvation and saved him from a life of sin. <sighs> so, mm -hmm. on September 20th, hey, if you're not coming behind me like Jim, I don't want it. I don't want it. <laughs> I don't want it because that is, they, these people, like, they are so loved, y'all. They are so loved. And so, on September 23rd, 2002, Jim, he he's at the house with their son, Joshua. They're waiting for Hung Im to come home and make Korean-style craft for dinner. He receives a call around 7 p.m. that his wife had been in an accident and to head over to the beauty supply store where Hung Im worked as a manager. So she was leaving the store around 6.30 p.m., keys in one hand, lunch pack in the other, getting ready to go home and make that dinner for her family and spend time with her baby and her husband. So this is when a stranger approaches her car and she is shot once in the head and died almost instantly. The bullet struck the back of her neck and blew out her left jaw. Mm. So when this happened, the explosion in her face severed the major blood vessels in her throat. Her purse was stolen, and a witness said they saw someone run towards a small park that was near the store. The next day, her husband went on to tell reporters that he forgave the killer and would pray for him. And his wife wouldn't have wanted for him to keep hate inside him, so him and his son stuck to their faith. Hong Im is remembered for her kindness and honest spirit. She was, she was highly active in the Korean Central Church of Baton Rouge. And she, she taught her husband how to become deeply rooted in his religion. So the ballistics matched, matched the Bushmaster 223 rifle. And Malvo and Muhammad, they were, they are charged with the capital murder and armed robbery. Um, but Louisiana, they don't, they didn't really push for any conviction. They didn't really push for, um, you know, a whole trial in regards to her murder. <sighs> that one was hard. I mean, all of them are hard, y'all. But I don't know why that just, that just, it just breaks my heart. It breaks my heart. These people have stories and they are just so important. They're just so important. That's why I do what the fuck I do. So let's move on. So um, they move on to Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And this is where they target uh, 52-year-old Wright Williams Jr. September 26, 2002. And he's locking up his family's grocery store when a bullet tears through his lip and it leaves a hole on the entrance of the grocery store. Now, Sir William, he took the fuck off. And as he's running up the street, he hears the sound of another bullet whizzing past his head. Man ain't playing. He pulled out a nine millimeter handgun and he starts shooting back. And unfortunately, they were not able to really conclusively match the 223 bullets to the weapon used in the killings. Um, but... <sighs> He knows who the fuck shot him. And that that's kind of the, the silver lining of some of these situations. They know who did it. And so they can kind of try to move on and have peace. But at the time, Mr. Williams had no clue what was happening. He thought he was somebody was trying to rob him. And so this is where I'm going to have to end part two. Um, 
yeah, this shit done took me. It took me out the game. I'm not going to lie to y'all. Um, this shit is just incredibly sad to me. Um, so this is where I'm going to end part two. Now in part three, that is when we're going to get to the notorious uh, shootings that happened in October. Um, this is where they are killing upwards of what, like five, six people in one fucking day. They, they shoot a child. And I mean, we got ransom notes and tarot card readings and John Allen Muhammad just acting like a fucking asshole. And then we got to talk about how Mildred Green finds out that her ex-husband is the DC sniper. We got to get into all of it. Um, but that's going to be part three when I bring back Coco Renee and Bobby Boucher. Uh, so yeah, we're going to get into this later on. I want to thank y'all for rocking with me. I will forever be rocking with y'all. And thank y'all for listening to Black Girl True Crime. I will catch y'all next week.